Hey, brothers and sisters, we are truly excited to bring this program to you. The message for today is about the Shroud of Turin. Take note, this is part three of this series on the Shroud of Turin. So we, we studied part one about the cloth. We studied part two about the man who suffered a crucifixion at the hands of the Romans in part two. And today we're going to talk about the image that was imprinted on the Shroud itself. Now for those who are tuning in for the first time and have no idea what we're talking about, Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew 27, 57 and 60. When it was evening, uh, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Yahushua. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Yahushua. Then Pilate ordered it to be given him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new, own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And so a rich man who was a prominent person during the days of our King Yahusha on earth, his name was Joseph of Arimathea, requested for the body of our King Yahusha because of his standing and his clout and his connections. He was given exactly what he requested. And so he prepares the body of our King Yahusha. And he follows the Jewish tradition, preparing the burial cloth made of linen, which is a fine linen shroud. And this is what he used to wrap the body of our King Yahusha for burial. He was buried in a new tomb. So we know when Yahusha died, he was wrapped up in this linen. So what happened to this linen shroud? In the book of John 26 to 7, when Simon Peter came, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Yahusha's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. And so when the disciples went to the tomb to check Yahusha's body, they did not find the body, but they did find the linen cloth. They found the shroud. And so if I were the disciples, I would probably take that shroud because it wrapped up our King Yahusha's body when it was buried. And so there is a linen cloth that was used to wrap the body of our King Yahusha. And upon his resurrection, it appears he leaves the linen cloth laying, lying there. And so this is how traditional burying techniques uh, were, fo were followed during the first century. This is the burial position. You see the person, there's, that could be Yahusha, and there is the linen cloth. And so he's wrapped around the linen cloth in that manner. And so this was the burial position. And so if you were to unwrap the linen cloth, this is what it looks like. So it's just one 14-foot linen cloth. And so it would have two images, the front image and the back image. And so... If this was wrapped around Yahusha and the body was still inside and you unwrap it, this is how the body would look like. So the body's positioned there. You wrap it over the head all the way to the foot. And so you wrap the body. So it's one single 14-foot linen cloth. And so those who discovered the Turin, which is called the Shroud of Turin, they believe that it is actually the burial cloth that wrapped around our king Yahushua. Now, we went ahead and investigated to see if this was plausible or not, because it's not biblical. I mean, there's no biblical scripture that tells us 
that the Shroud of Turin is the cloth that wrapped the body of our King Yahushua. There's no biblical verse like that. And so we cannot say this is true, right? But we can, when we are presented with facts of history, we can test it to see the plausibility. So that's exactly what we did. And so we had three parts in this study. First, we studied the cloth. And when we looked at the cloth, we know for a fact that it suffered some burns, some water stains. It had patches that were sawn in 1534 because it was a fire. And so you can see the patch marks that is located there. And so when they did the initial carbon dating study back in 1988, unfortunately, what they studied, the sample they took was the patch from 1534. So it's, it's not surprising that the carbon dating produced results that lead to the Middle Ages. However, when he conducted further study, more and more scientific evidences came up and the evidence tells us the Shroud of Turin was made of linen that was made in the first century in Jerusalem around March and April. The reason why they're able to make this conclusion is because they looked at soil samples in the Shroud flowers in the shroud, pollen in the shroud, and other uh, materials in the shroud. They tested the vanillin content of the shroud. And so all of the evidence that they used point to the shroud being produced in the first century in Jerusalem around March and April. So this kind of connects or corroborates uh, the uh, belief that the Shroud of Turin could have been the linen cloth that wrapped the dead body of our king, Yahushua. So that was part one. In part two, we looked at the man in the shroud and those who studied the imprint of the blood. Because when you look at the shroud, it contains blood stains. And when you examine the blood stains in the shroud, it paints a picture of a man who was brutally and tortuously um, made to suffer. Tortuous streams of blood are noted in the hair. The neck is not visible, suggesting rigor mortis, swelling of the forehead, brows, right upper lip and jaw, the nasal cartilage is separated, the eye, the right eyelid may be torn, the, the thumbs are not visible. Again, this tells us it's because of rigor mortis, which tells us the man suffered immensely. There were more than a hundred scourge marks, abrasions noted on both shoulders, a large oval chest wound between the right fifth and sixth ribs, Blood flow is visible from the chest wound, scalp, and both hands and feet. And the blood stains, when they were investigated, came up AB positive. And so AB positive happens to be kind of rare in the general population, but it's more prevalent in the Jewish population for some reason. So that's kind of interesting. And so when you look at the Shroud of Turin, it tells us and it pictures a man who suffered crucifixion. And if you look at the dorsal image, you can see the scourge marks. And so it is in fact communicating to us today that this man, whoever he may be, suffered immensely. Crucifixion, crown of thorns, and piercing on the side, he was dead because when they looked at the imaging of the blood, it contained blood plasma which corresponds to what happened when the Roman speared Yahushua's chest and water and blood came out, indicating that he already died. So the blood stains on the shroud and the patterns of the wounds tell us that, man, uh, that the man in the shroud died 
after he was scourged, found the thorns placed on his head, carried the cross, and crucified. And he was pierced on his, on his side to confirm his death. So that's what part two kind of showed us. It, it, we know the facts tell us he was indeed someone who suffered immensely through crucifixion. So part three, which is what we're going to study today, is the more mysterious part of the Shroud of Turin. It's about the image that was formed. You see, when you go to the Shroud of Turin, by the way, the Shroud is on exhibit, I think every 10 years. So the next time it's going to be on exhibit is in 2025 in Italy. So if you want to go there, maybe we can plan a field trip to go there, kind of check out the Shroud of Turin. If you want to do that, let us know. Anyways, when you go look at the shroud, the image that you see comes in two parts. It has the blood stains, right? And the blood stains kind of, it, it seeps through the entire cloth, which is what to, ex to be expected. If you have a piece of cloth, linen cloth, and there's blood, it's going to seep through the cloth. But it also contains an image of the body, a body image. The body image is different from the image produced by the blood stains. The blood stains correspond perfectly to the body image, which is why it's so fa uh, so fantastic, because they kind of fit together like a puzzle. You know, you have a separate blood stain and you have a separate body image. Now, the mystery here is not the blood stain; it is the body image. What created the body image in the shroud? Now, if you were someone who first kind of were checking out the shroud, you were looking into it, maybe you can see it in front of your face, maybe you will say, oh, somebody painted that, right? Somebody drew that, maybe some medieval forger, or maybe some medieval artist like Da Vinci, he painted the body on the shroud. Well, if he did, what kind of materials did he use? What medium did he use? Because when you look at the shroud, it's a faint image. And you can't, it, sometimes it's barely visible. It's barely visible when you look at it, unless there's uh, in ultraviolet light shining upon it. But this is kind of how it looks like when it's enhanced. So you can, you can see the faint image. You can see the burn marks. You can see the blood stains. And you can also see the image of a body. And so this is another example of the entire body, including the face. And so we see a, a body image, a facial image. And what's interesting about the image that was produced in the Shroud of Turin is that it's perfectly and anatomically, anatomically correct. And so if medical experts were to examine the imprint, the body itself, and the image it produced, it's anatomically correct, unlike medieval artworks, which is not anatomically correct. And so whatever produced the image must have been, well, if this was a forgery, he must have understood the human anatomy well. And so lots and lots of testing um, was made because they want to know how the image was produced. And so what they found out, you know, because they tested every possible medium, you know how scientists are, and we know, like what we told you before, uh, the Shroud of Turin is the most tested, the most studied artifact 
in the whole world. And so it's been studied for hundreds of years by thousands of scientists. And so every possible medium has been tested. And you know what they said? Well, it's not a painting. There's no paint. There's no dye. No dye, right? It's not a pencil drawing either. Not a scorched image, not a charcoal image, not a crayon image, not a rubbing image. And so when they're looking at this image, they can't figure out what the medium is. They have no idea. And one more thing about the image, it is very faint. It is very superficial. In fact, the image is only 200 nanometers deep. In other words, when you look at the image, it's only at the very top, the very top layer. And that top layer, unlike when you paint over um, the linen cloth, the layer of paint, the pigmentation, it's going to create like a, a thin a thin layer that you can measure. But when it comes to the image in the Shroud of Turin, amazingly thin. This is why they can't figure out how it was made. It's simply at the top. It doesn't seep beneath it. It doesn't. It's just at the surface, at the very, very surface layer. There's this coloration at the very, very surface layer. In fact, it only affects the thread, barely. And so the image is only 200 nanometers deep. To give an idea of how incredibly thin that is, you know how thick a single sheet of paper is? That's pretty thin, right? A single sheet of paper? Well, a single sheet of paper is 500 times thicker than the image. <laughs> That's amazing. 200 nanometers deep. That's it. When you paint across linen material, you will get layers that's pretty thick. But this image, it's unlike they've never seen before. And so according to scottsullivan.com, so there's not anything soaked into the fibers. The blood soaks into the fibers, but the image does not. That means the image cannot be a pigment, cannot be dye, cannot be ink. It also can't be the result of chemicals, not body vapors, or anything of that nature, since, the, uh, so, since that would stain the deeper fibers. I just want to kind of get you to understand and grasp your mind around how incredible this image is. There's no image like it in the whole world. None. This is the only image that has these characteristics. In fact, according to all the studies, the medium used to create the image cannot be identified by modern science. Can you imagine that? I mean, if the image was created by a forger, what medium did they use? Do, did they, do they know more than the people today, right? Let's say, for example, for the sake of argument, this was a medieval forgery. So during medieval times, what kind of technology did they have that we don't understand? Because our modern science, with all these scientists investigating the Shroud of Turin, they can't figure out how the image was placed on the cloth. So how can we possibly explain that? Because the image, when you look at it, it appears to be seared just at the very top. And so they don't know. And so what do you do? Well, you keep studying, right? And so eventually physicists come into the scene. The physicists will begin to test them. More and more physicists began to test the image on the shroud. And when they did so, what they kind of concluded, it was produced by light. 
but a weird kind of light, light like anything you've ever encountered before. Because when you produce light, if you like place light upon something because of the oxidation effect, eventually it's going to produce some discoloration. For example, you place a piece of newspaper out in the sunlight, eventually it's kind of going to, going to change color, it's going to have a browning effect. And so the shroud, in the same way, is kind of producing that image, but not exactly. It's different. And so when they look at it, they understand, when they look at the image on the shroud, it has the characteristics of a scorch mark. You know how a scorch is made? When you produce something because of fire, it produces a scorch mark, right? Because of light and heat. So the light and heat produces the image on the fabric. And so when you look at the, the shroud of Turin, the image has different coloration, very, very thin difference in coloration. And so when you examine it using a, spectro a, a spectrometer, you find it has the same spectral reflectance as a scorch. So when you use this analysis for a mark that's been burnt by a scorch, but that's been scorched, it looks like what's on the shroud of Turin, right? But the only problem is, when you use UV fluorescence, because when you use UV fluorescence, it will show you that the mark produced by a scorch uh, is something produced by heat. But in the case of the shroud, it is a scorch mark without the scorch. <laughs> in other words, it is produced by a light source without the heat. So it's a type of radiation that has no heat, but it has power to change the coloration, which is really weird. They've never seen anything like that before. So according to a physicist, Apollo de Lazaroa, lead scientist working at the, the National Agency for New Technologies, he tried for five years to replicate the image and said that vacuum ultraviolet radiation. And so they believe, most scientists believe it's some form of radiation that produced this image, VUV, wavelength 200 to 100 nanometers, from laser pulses lasting less than 15 nanoseconds, produces the best effect, but they, could, they cannot completely duplicate it, okay? He concluded that the image was produced by ultraviolet light, but that the ultraviolet light necessary to reproduce the image exceeds the maximum power released by all ultraviolet light sources available today. The time for such a burst would be shorter than 40 billionth of a second. And the intensity of the ultraviolet light wave, the light would have to be around several, several billion watts. In other words, according to other scientists, the power needed to produce this kind of image exceeds all the electrical power generated in the entire Earth at one time. That's how they explain it. This is why it's been investigated by so many scientists because they're perplexed by it. You know what? And you know what? Scientists love mystery. That's why people come over when they were given the chance and they kept studying it and studying it. And the conclusion physicists have made, it was produced by some kind of radiation, some kind of light source, but it is filled with energy the kind of energy and power needed exceeds 
what the earth is able to provide at one time. So the question is, where did the source that produced the image come from? I mean, if it exceeds all that energy, where did it come from, right? How did it come to be? Well, we kind of get a clue because when you look at the shroud, it is perhaps best seen as a photonegative. You see, before the invention of photography, which was invented in the 19th century, right? When they looked at the shroud, all they saw was the shroud. And when you look at the shroud, it had a faint image. And when somebody first photographed the shroud in the 19th century, and they looked at the negative, the photo negative, you know what it showed? It showed this. It showed incredible detail. And so what you see on the left is, looks like a photo negative of the shroud. You know how back long ago, this was when you know, I was still a young person, maybe three or four years old, eight years old, when you wanted to develop some photographs, you use a negative, right? And so the negative, when you look at it, it doesn't have much detail. When you look at the actual photo, what do you see? A lot of detail. You look at the negative, you said, what is that? It resembles it but it lacks a lot of detail. But in this instance, the photo negative has more detail than the actual picture. And so this was mysterious. So when you look at the left, that's the actual picture. And then you look at the right, it has more detail. It tells you more. It has more information, which is really odd because when you look at the, the photo negative of the picture, eerily, it, it looks human, right? It looks more and more like a human being. And it's really, really astonishing. So the photo negative is much clearer and provides more information than the photo positive, which means, do you know what this means? The only explanation you get is that the natural image in, on the left, the one on the yellow, right? This natural image must have been a photo negative to start with. Right? You get it? And so what shows up in the photo negative is a positive. And so this is astonishing. So what could possibly produce this? So that what's what we see on the actual is actually the photo negative. How can that be? We'll find out later on. But what we know is when the shroud was first created, there was no photography, right? And so it didn't make any sense how you can create the image of the shroud while you anticipate the advent of photography. It's like whoever created the shroud was anticipating the advent of photography. That's amazing. And so whoever made the shroud, the details of that image will not be seen for centuries. And what's even more astonishing, there's information on the image of the shroud that will astonish you. Not only does it reflect the advent of photography, even when it comes to the content and the information found in the image of the shroud, it also anticipates 3D pictures because we have something called the VP8 image analyzer, which was invented, I believe in the 1970s. It's a modern device that can convert image density into vertical dimensions. 
It has been used to determine the topography of planets. When you use the VP8 on a photograph or painting, you just get a distorted image. And so there's a, an image analyzer called the VP8. And so when you use a VP8 on a picture that was shot specifically to produce topographical information or 3D information, then when you take when you use the VP8 analyzer, it, it will produce for you a 3D image. So if you use a VPH, a VP8 image analyzer on a regular photo that was not shot for 3D purposes, it's going to be jumbled up. It's going to be just a distorted image. It's going to be like static. You know, when you watch TV and you turn to a channel that doesn't exist, it's just static. It's the kind of picture you get. Jumbled information when you use a VP8 image analyzer on a photo or an image that was made in 2D. And so when they decided to um, use the VP8 image analyzer on the shroud of Turin, I mean, you're not expecting a 3D image, do you? But this is what they found. Researchers were astonished when they discovered that when the VP8 is applied to the shroud, you get an accurate topographic image suggesting that the image was made when a cloth was wrapped over a real human body. This means the shroud contains a spa spatial or 3D data encoded into the body image. And so you get 3D, you can produce 3D images just on the information contained on the shroud. Remember that image, that faint image on the shroud? When you take a photo, it gives you a negative, a photo negative that's more detailed than the actual. Now, when you use a VPA, it produces a 3D picture, a 3D image of the shroud. And it produces a lifelike, very lifelike picture of the person in the shroud. And last week, I think we showed you even the 3D representation of the shroud. This is only possible because whoever made the shroud made it with 3D information. That's crazy, right? In other words, whoever made the shroud anticipated that in the 1970s, someone's going to invent the ability to be able to decipher all that encoded information, produce a 3D image. And so this tells us whoever created it must have been really smart, ahead of his time, invented and understood 3D typography. Who could that be? I don't know. I don't know if that was a forgery, right? So the image formed by energy, uh, the image was formed by an amount of energy that's not available um, for us to produce and also encoded information in 3D. And so the mystery keeps getting deeper, right? What produced that image? How can this be explained? And so when we look at the negative image, which is actually the positive image, right? And we'll tell you later why the negative image is actually the positive image. When you look at the negative image, and when you kind of zoom in up close, and scientists have looked at what produced the image, and when they kind of examine using a microscope and they look at the pigmentation, or not the pigmentation, but the discoloration, because there are no pigments. When they look at the discoloration of the, the different fibers, it created a pattern. And the pattern produced like lines, parallel lines. And so what they said, what they concluded from their study 
was that the light source, whatever, produ whatever produced the image, that light source that produces the image, remember, it's a light source that doesn't burn, right? It's light that doesn't burn that produced the image. The light came from the inside of the one in the image and traveled in all directions in exact parallel lines. I want you to keep that in mind because this is crazy. And so the light source was in parallel lines relative to the horizon. Well, what, what does that mean? And so more and more people are kind of perplexed. And you know, scientists love a great mystery. So more and more scientists come in, more and more physicists come in. I want to know. I want to investigate that too. And so there's a study, um, the International Institute for Advanced Studies of Space uh, Representation Sciences in Italy. This was conducted, I believe, back in the, the late two, the, the 2000s. And what they discovered, <laughs> this is going to shock you. Are you ready for this? What they saw when they were studying the image up close and they studied the pattern of the discoloration was that the image was moving. Here's a picture of the nail. Very faint nails in the wrist, the hand, the feet, the arms the belt that he was wearing. Apparently there was a belt that he was wearing. And every part of his body, it was actually moving. What they discovered in these images was the image, take a look at this, is not a single exposure, but a combination of multiple exposures. So this is a recent discovery. What they're saying is the image on the shroud not only is it mysterious in how it got there, not only is it mysterious in why it looks better on a photo negative, not only is it mysterious because of the amount of energy needed to produce that image, it's also mysterious because it's actually an example of stroboscopic photography. You know what stroboscopic photography is? It's like burst, you know, when you take a photo in your iPhone, or your Android, I think Android has it too, but I know my kids who have iPhones, they have stroboscopic photography and a person can jump, right? And it will take like bursts of photos, rapid fire photos. And you, you can see the pic, you can, you can see like uh, like this the ballet dancer. And so you can see the movement, you can trace the movement. And so that's what they find. And when you look at the stroboscopic photography in this case on the screen, like you can see some blurry images. And so that's what also they find in the shroud, fuzzy or seemingly out of focus parts of the image, but it's actually moving. And so what they say is whatever produced the image is an oscillating burst of high intensity, single wavelength light. This is a technology we don't even have today. Beloved Reverend, the image in the shroud tells us it's moving. Wait a minute. If the image in the shroud is moving, what does that mean? What does that mean? He's alive. <laughs> He's not dead. He's alive. What does that mean? He's resurrecting. And when you look at the image on the shroud, his eyes are still closed. You know what that means? The image in the shroud captures 
not just the death and suffering of the man. It captures also the first instance of his resurrection prior to opening his eyes. Right before he opened his eyes. The resurrection was imprinted, imprinted on the shroud of Turin. And so when they further examine this phenomena, how can you have like, you know, th this kind of uh, stroboscopic photography in the shroud and the parallel lines and the negative image. And so they kept studying and studying how does it all fit. And so a physicist by the name of Dane Isabel Pizek said, the body is hovering between the upper and lower sheet and there's no trace of gravity. And so when they looked at the image, it was suggesting, it was giving evidence that it was kind of levitating. The body is hovering between the upper and lower sheet and there's no trace of gravity. This is described as an event horizon. The lack of gravity is also further proven by the shroud linen. The linen does not fall on top of the body, but remains in its unnaturally stretched condition at some distance from the body. You can read the signs of the shroud, such as a total lack of gravity, lack of entropy, without gravitational collapse, no time, no space that conforms to no known law of physics. And so they're perplexing even more. So you notice what's happening? The more they investigate how this came about, the more perplexed they get. Right, And so according to the nature of the event horizons, the dead body must have left its image on the two surfaces of the event horizons. At the time of the explosion, when time stopped, these images were ejected on both sides of the shroud with the body hovering parallel to the event horizons. This explains why the image shows a dead man, not the risen body, and also explains why the image is negative went from po a positive body image to the negative image, like a camera film negative. This indicates how the image got onto the cloth. And so this tells us that the light came from within the person. That's why it produced that image. And so the image on the shroud, which we see as the, the, the real, the actual picture is actually the negative, right? So the actual picture, is the negative that we shoot after we photograph, that we, that we see after we take a photograph, because the, the, the light that produced the image came from within and in parallel lines because it was hovering. And this tells us the body was levitating. It was levitating. The image was, while the image was being made. So this means, I think, I mean, if you look at the science, Yahushua just kind of went up. He went up horizontally through, right before he resurrected, right before he went through the linen cloth. It's, it's amazing. And that's what the science is telling us. And to, to be able to produce a kind of image depicted in the Shroud of Turin, it's an incredible source of radiant energy, which brings us again to our question, what was the source of this radiant energy? energy. <laughs> Despite thousands and thousands of rigorous scientific testing for over 116 years, you know what their scientific conclusion is? We don't know. <laughs> they have no idea. According to Paolo Lee Lazaro and other scientists, up-to-date all attempts to reproduce an image with the same microscopic and macroscopic aspect 
as well as all the chemical and physical characteristics have been unsuccessful. In this respect, the origin of the image is still unknown, right? The shroud is the most scientifically tested archeological object in the history of mankind. And we have no idea what made the image on the shroud. And in spite of all, all of our modern technology, we cannot recreate, cannot recreate this image today. To date, every single attempt to reproduce this image, having the same microscopic and macroscopic qualities, as well as having the same chemical and physical characteristics, they all have failed. So up to, up to now, after researching this for 116 years by thousands of scientists, including physicists and chemists, what is their conclusion? We don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. And you know what it means, right? When it's a mystery to our science, what is it called? It's a mystery. It's a miracle, <laughs> right? It's a miracle. Oh, we don't believe in miracles because you don't believe in God. Mysteries reveal the power in miracle of God. They have no idea how the shroud is produced. If you think it's a hoax, I have a proposition for you. You're watching this program and you think the shroud of Turin is a hoax. You can win a million dollars because there's a challenge, the $1 million challenge. If the, the Turin shroud is a forgery, show how it was done. You get a million dollars. <laughs> Do you think these scientists want a million dollars? You betcha. But they haven't produced. They haven't shown. No one can duplicate it. No one can explain it. But if you can, you're watching, right? If you can, go ahead and apply. Maybe you can win a million dollars, okay? So what is the purpose of the shroud? Why do we have it? Something as mysterious as the Shroud of Turin, why does it exist? Why are we studying it today? We're studying it because it's the basis of our faith. Believe that? We believe Yahusha died, he suffered, he resurrected for our sins. We believe that because it is written. Why? We believe the Bible. Question, are there people today who don't believe the Bible? Yeah. Are there people today who don't believe God? Yeah. So why would they read the Bible? And so does it mean, because a person says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in Yahushua, I don't believe in the resurrection, does it mean God gave up on them? Probably not. Could it be? I want you to think about this, beloved brethren, because this is the reason why we're studying this. Could the Shroud of Turin be a sign given for unbelievers so that when they're convinced by the Shroud, maybe it will take them to a path to kind of study the Bible and then build their faith from the Bible. Because not everyone believes the Bible. Because if you will say, oh, you need to believe in Yahushua, he died for our sins, the gospel message is this. And then you say to them, that's what the Bible says. What if they say, I don't believe the Bible? What do you do? Right? I mean, it's a good thing Yahuwah is merciful, right? He wants to give every chance to every person so that they have no excuse. So could the shroud of Turin be a sign that was left behind for unbelievers, for people who don't believe God, for people who don't believe in resurrection? Could be. Because if you remember, when you think about it, there's two great events in history. You know what the two greatest events in history are? If I would ask you, what are the two greatest events in history? 
what would it be? I believe it's the creation of history and the purpose of history, right? What would be the two greatest events in history? The creation of history, the start of history, right? And the purpose of history. It's like, what are the two greatest events? Well, number one, the creation of the universe and all that is in it, including life. Well, what's another great event? The purpose of why all things were created. What is that? The death, burial, and resurrection of Yahushua. So that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Yahushua, we can have life. And so the first part, the creation of the universe. The second part is the purpose of why things were created. Bible says all things were created through Yahushua. For his mediation. How can he mediate? Because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the two greatest events of history, the creation of the universe and all life in it, and the second, the death, burial, and resurrection of our king, Yahushua. And so when, if I were to tell you, the creation of the universe is easy. Yahuwah God created all things. What will many people they say? No. What will they say? Big Bang produced it. Right? What produced the Big Bang? Oh, the Big Bang can explain the origin of the universe. And so someone invents the James Webb telescope and they look into the deep cosmos, into the early, early stages of the universe's formation. What do they find out? Everything they knew about cosmology is wrong. <laughs> can you imagine that? Studying all these years and all of a sudden it's proven wrong by experimental verification, by experimental, da experimental data. So let's look at the creation of the universe and all that is in it. Why does it make sense, rational sense, to believe that Jehovah God created all this? Let's read the book of Romans 1, 19 to 20. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Not every person believes in the Bible. Not every person believes in God. And so what does God do? He creates a universe that's orderly. He creates a universe that's discoverable. And when you study the universe and everything God has made, what will you conclude? We cannot explain it. We tried our best to explain it. We came up with theories. Some of them work. Most of them don't. We're perplexed by how life came to be. We can't create life in the lab. We don't know how the universe started. And so what do you say? God must have created all things. And so Yahuwah God created everything, the cosmos, the vastness of the universe, to convince people who don't believe the Bible that God exists. That's why they have no excuse. Brother, I don't believe in God because I don't believe the Bible. Well, read the cosmos. Read nature. Read life forms. Read galaxies. Examine them. You have no excuse because you cannot explain it. <laughs> right? The mysteries reveal the power and the nature, divine nature of God. And so if Yahuwah God provided the universe, 
as a sign so that people who don't believe in him will believe in him without the Bible. Do you think for the second greatest event in history, do you think he might provide a sign also? So that people who don't believe in the Bible, who read the Bible, people who don't believe in Yahusha, somehow, some way, a sign will be given to them to convince them to start reading the Bible so that they can believe in Yahusha and trust in him for their salvation. I mean, Yahuwah God did it for to convince people to believe that he created all things. Why not him giving a sign? It makes sense now, right? That he could possibly get, create a sign for people who are unbelievers, for people who don't believe the Bible, to look at something and say, you know what? There's only one explanation. He did die and he did resurrect. Could that be the Shroud of Turin? Could be. Remember, when our King Yahushua was on earth, did he perform miracles? Yes or no? He did. What was his purpose in the miraculous signs that he did? In the book of John 20, 30, 31, Yahushua did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Yahushua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Bible tells us that Yahushua did many miraculous signs. And many of these miraculous signs were not recorded in the Bible, right? But what was recorded in the Bible is enough for us to have a faith that will lead to our salvation through his name. And so if we believe the Bible, which we do in the assembly of Yahushua, we believe in what is in the Bible. We believe in the miraculous signs in the Bible, right? But there are those who don't. <laughs> Could it be that Yahushua also created other miraculous signs? Not for the believers of the Bible, but for those who don't yet believe in the Bible? Right? Maybe. Because one thing we know about Yahuwah and Yahushua, they're very compassionate, long-suffering. He wants to give, you want to give every opportunity for people to be saved. I mean, even unbelievers like the Pharisees. Even an adulterous and unbelieving generation, even they were given a sign. Take a look at this, Matthew 12, 38 to 40. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. <laughs> he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. First Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so you're the Pharisees. Were they believers of Yahushua? No. <laughs> did they ask for a sign? Yeah. What did Yahushua say to them? You are a wicked and adulterous generation. They were unbelieving and you asked for a sign. What does Yahushua say? When you look at it, it seems like he says no. But actually, he's giving a very powerful sign, right? I mean, look at this sign. Yahushua says to the Pharisees who are unbelieving, he says to the Pharisees and to the wicked and adulterous generation, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. This is the only sign, the only sign I'm going to give you. What is that? The sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? <laughs> what happened to Jonah? was swallowed up by the big fish, 
After three days and three nights, he was spit to the shore, right? And so what did that picture? It was a picture and a story, a typification of the, the resurrection of our king, Yahushua. Because the story, that's what happened to Jonah, was pointing to what Yahushua is going to experience. He's going to die. And after three days and three nights, what will happen to him? He'll be resurrected. Do you know what our king Yahushua is saying to these generation who are unbelievers? He's saying, I'm going to give you a powerful sign. What is that sign? Resurrection. I want to die. And after three days, I'm going to resurrect. And so that was a sign that Husha gave in the first century. The resurrection. What do you think the sign he I mean, if he gave a sign to that adulterous and wicked generation, do you think he'll also give a sign to the 21st century? Yeah, because those in the 21st century are very close, are very close to the end of the world. I mean, if in the first century he gave this powerful sign of the resurrection, don't you think he will also give us a sign when his return is fast approaching? I think so, right? And so the miraculous sign in the first century was his actual resurrection. What could be the miraculous sign in the 21st century? Something that cannot be explained. By the scientists. What is that? Shroud. A shroud. That gives evidence. For the resurrection. Because how else would you explain it? Right? He did many other miracles. And even today. Maybe that shroud was left behind. So it will serve as a miraculous sign. It's a sign indeed. It's miraculous. It cannot be explained despite hundreds of years of study. And so we are without excuse in the 21st century. There is evidence outside the Bible, you see, that Yahuwah exists and is creator of all things, right? You don't need the Bible to tell you that. The universe tells you that. Life tells you that. There's evidence outside the Bible that Yahushua suffered, died, and resurrected. Even outside the Bible, you can find evidence for that. Perhaps in a miraculous sign called Ishrada to win, right? Yes, it remains a mystery, which means it's a miracle. If it's a miracle, it must be the work of the supernatural. It must be the work of Yahuwah, Abba. And so what produced the light with immense energy that produced that image in the shroud? What produced that resurrect, the re resurrection power? What do you think? Remember how they describe the, uh, the light source, right? It's light that doesn't produce heat. It's, it's light that doesn't burn. It's a light that doesn't scorch. Kind of weird. It's like an ultra-powerful light source that doesn't burn. Have you, do you have any idea what, could that, what that could be? A light that doesn't burn. Does it sound familiar to you? <laughs> I want to read the book of Exodus. That the angel of Yahuwah appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so if a scientist would go back in time and go to this incident where Moses sees a burning bush and uses spectrography to study the, the plant, right? It has evidence of light, but no burning. <laughs> Just like what was shown when the scorch mark or the markings on the shroud 
was tested, right? So now as a start, I will go over and see the strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? What produces that light that produces no heat? That doesn't, that doesn't burn. The glory of Yahuwah, right? What else? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahuwah. So when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. And so here's Moses. He gets summoned to Mount Sinai and he has a conversation with God. You have a transaction. He gets the tablets. When Moses came down, what was happening to his face? His face was glowing. It was radiant. Was it burning him? No. There was light, but there was no heat. There was light, but there was no burning. What was that? That was the residue, just the residue of the glory of God. How is the glory of Yahuwah manifested today? Let's read the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. How is the glory of God manifest today? The Holy Spirit. And in this instance on Pentecost, after the resurrection of our King Yahushua, what happened? Tongues of fire appeared. What was that? Manifestation of the glory of Yahuwah through the power of His Holy Spirit. And so where did that light source come from? Yahuwah. That light source came from Yahuwah. He sent it to His Son. It activated the Son from within. And then it burst forth the power of his resurrection. Ephesians 1. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. You know, the scientists concluded whatever source of energy produced this image, we know it cannot be from earth because the earth doesn't have that kind of power. But who has a kind of power? <laughs> Yahuwah has a kind of power. The only explanation is the work of God. The work of the hand of our father, Yahuwah. It was the power of his resurrection. It was manifested in the Holy Spirit. The radiant light that emanated from within the body of our King Yahusha. Causing him to resurrect. This is why the shroud, when you look at it, it doesn't talk. Remember what Yahuwah God said in the book of Psalms? Look at the universe. It doesn't talk, but it tells you a lot. What does it speak? It speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of the power of God. Because when you look at the cosmos, when you look at the universe, you conclude it's telling us Yahuwah God created all of this. When you look at the shroud, it also speaks. It doesn't have a language, right? It doesn't speak verbally, but it speaks to us. It communicates to us as well because it reveals something. You know what is revealed in the shroud? Three things, okay? Number one, 
it reveals to us that uh, there was someone who suffered, <laughs> right? Who died, who was buried. So the suffering and death and burial of our King Yahushua. All that information is in the shroud because the blood remained red because when one goes through a cruel torture, their blood, uh, the torture, their blood chemistry, something happens to it. The hemoglobin, the hemoglobin breaks down. The liver produces an enzyme called bilirubin. When this happens, the blood stays red. Usually when you have a blood stain, it becomes black, right? But when, because of bilirubin, which is releasing in the, the liver, when a person is going through horrific torture, then the blood stays red. This is why when you look at the picture, it's kind of still red. And it's always going to be staying red. Right? Isn't that interesting? And so what this tells us, all the, the blood stains that's still red, it tells the picture of a man who suffered, who died, and who was buried because it was wrapped in the linen cloth. And so the Shroud of Turin tells us, it reveals to us, the death, suffering, and burial of our king, Yahushua, right? Number two. It also tells us about the work of redemption. You look at the left, which is the actual picture. When you look at the right, which is the negative, but in actuality, when you think about it, because of how it was produced, the one on the right, the negative, is actually the original image. And when you look at the blood stain, what color is it? Wow, it's white. <laughs> it started out red, and then it became white. What does that tell us? 118, come now, let us settle this, says Yahuwah. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. And so the shroud also reveals the work of redemption. And so it reveals the suffering, death, and burial of our King Yahushua. It reveals the work of redemption. What also do you think it reveals? Yeah, the work of restoration. Because these images tell us that there's movement. There was a resurrection, a restoration of what was once dead. Now it's alive. Now it's filled with glory. It went right through the shroud. And it produced that image. That's the glory that was revealed. That's the restoration. So when you look at the shroud of Turin, even though it has no words, it speaks powerfully about a man who was suffering, who died, was buried. It speaks of the work of rest, uh, redemption, and it speaks of the work of restoration because it tells us that he was resurrected. It captured the instant instance of his resurrection before he opened his eyes. One day, brethren, our eyes are going to open too when we hear that voice of our king from our king Yahushua. And what will bring us back to life? Let's go back to Ephesians. I want you to know, to kind of remember this passage. I also pray that you will understand. And so Apostle Paul wants us to understand this. Not just to read it, because we read this already. But I want you to really understand this passage. Because when you really understand this passage, it's going to be a source of comfort, a source of boldness, when there are times when we will feel afraid a source of strength for all of us because what he wants us to understand is about what is in us. And Apostle Paul says, I pray, he prays, 
that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. For us who believe him, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you believe that? I mean, what Apostle Paul is telling us is this. That power that caused Yahushua to be resurrected, that power that brought him to uh, the heavenly realms, sitting at the right hand of God, that same power is also going to work in us and through us. Beloved brethren, we may be but vessels, but what is in us is the power of God, the power of Yahuwah that cannot be duplicated here on earth. That's what saves. And I want you to understand that, beloved brethren. And that power is something we can depend on when we study the Bible, when we face difficulties in our life, when we feel overwhelmed. Rely on that power. But for whom is this power given to? The ones who believe. We have to believe. We have to trust. And the source of our belief, the source of our trust is not the shroud. It's the spirit and the word together in our hearts. That's what gives us our faith and our belief. Cling to that. And when we cling to that, the power is going to manifest itself in our life now. Most of all, how will it manifest itself in the future? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. The book of Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. There is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. You see that power that brought Yahushua back to life? That power that brought him to the heavenly realms? That power is at work in us now. And that power will be manifested ultimately when it will bring us back to life. You see, when Yahushua was resurrected, he was the first of many. We are the many who will follow him. When will that be? When he returns. And so when he returns, the power that brought him life everlasting will be the same power that will bring us to life, that will give us a glorious body, and it will take us to heaven with him to be with Yahuwah and Yahusha forevermore. This is why, brothers and sisters, let us trust in Yahuwah, in Yahusha, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may it give us boldness that we may proclaim the gospel, that we might worship Yahuwah and Yahusha forevermore. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba. Gracious Yahuwah Allahim, thank you so much. You are so kind. You are so long-suffering. You want all people to be given the opportunity to be saved. Many have rejected you. Many have scoffed you in pursuit of their own desires. But Father, you are kind and good, and you want all to be saved, so that when you will send your Son, no one will have an excuse. Father, 
May you please have mercy upon us, upon our children and loved ones who are not yet ready for salvation. Somehow, may you reach out to them. You can discern their level of faith, their level of belief. We live during a time of great agnosticism, skepticism, people who reject and mock the Bible. Father, we know that you will find a way to reach out to those who do not yet believe. Father, somehow, may you use this program as an instrument because we will never stop proclaiming the teachings that you have given us. Thank you, Father, because we know that the opportunities presented to us when we do it properly, when it causes people to read your book and from there develop a strong faith, it will reap a harvest of righteousness and ultimately life everlasting. And so we will do our best to proclaim your name, Yahuwah, to teach the gospel message. But Father, there's only so much we can do. We ask for the power of your spirit to work in the life of the people we love, that they will also be embraced by your salvation. Our King Yahushua, thank you so much. You suffered immensely for us. You resurrected. How glorious it must have been when you were brought to life. You were dead three days and three nights. But in one instance, your eyes opened and you stood eventually ascending to heaven. We too will be like that, but we can never forget before that took place, before your resurrection and ascension, there was the suffering. There was the great persecution, the great agony and pain, the crucifixion you had to endure. We can never forget that. Thank you so much for loving of enough that you did that for us. And so we will do our best to follow you and to bring others to you. We know this is what you want. You even gave a miraculous sign for those who did not believe you, for those who killed you, because you love us that much. And so we are confident if we will just be patient, our loved ones will also receive this calling and all of us can be embraced by salvation. Father, thank you so much for being there for us. We know one thing, judgment day is coming soon. You will send your son soon. We will be with him soon. Father, help us to be prepared. Help us to be watching. Help us to know you more and more as we continue to read your good book. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen.